You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. We're an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is devoted to the upcoming C19 conference in Pasadena, California, which takes place March 14th through the 16th of 2024. The conversation you will hear today is designed to orient new and returning conference attendees and get us excited for opportunities like this one, where we get to gather and share our work. We feature a discussion between Jess Van Gilder, Courtney Murray, and Lara Langer-Cohen regarding opportunities for networking, the do's and don'ts of conferencing, and the conference's ominous but promising theme, The End. Along the way, just to give you a taste of the broad range of conference attendees you may encounter if you join us in Pasadena, you'll hear brief updates from some of our past podcast contributors, Spencer Tricker, Carrie Snyder, Sean Gordon, and Vanessa Ovale-Perez, who will be attending the conference. Thanks for being here today. It's really great to, to see you all. I just wanted to start by having everybody introduce yourselves. I can go ahead and start. My name is Jess Van Gilder. I am with the C19 Podcast Subcommittee, and I'm currently uh, finishing up my doctorate program at the University of Kentucky. My name is Courtney Murray. I'm currently a PhD candidate at Pennsylvania State University in English and African American Studies. My connection to C19 is that I have recently become one of the leaders and editors for the G19 Collective. My name is Lara Langer-Cohen, um, and I'm Associate Professor of English at Swarthmore College, and I am Chair of the C19 Program Committee for this year. And that committee also includes Holly Jackson and Jess Lebo and Caroline Yang. Well, we have quite a lot to talk about today, so we can go ahead and get started. But, you know, our focus today is going to be the 2024 C-19 conference in Pasadena, California. And just to get us going, you know, Lara, as program chair, you kind of have the inside scoop, I think. We would love to get a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into conference planning. How do you choose locations? What are some of the challenges of planning at this scale, especially for a biennial conference? Yeah, so the the president and the site committee actually do like the lion's share of that work. So they'd be able to speak to it, you know, better than I can. But I do know that C19 tries to move around so that the conference doesn't like unduly privilege one region. And they try to choose sites that have like a rich 19th century history, but also like a vibrant contemporary cultural life. Well, we have to talk about the, this year's theme, right? The end. Uh, a little bit dark, a little bit ominous. What's the story behind this theme? And I would love to hear from each of you, like, what does that theme mean to you right now? I mean, obviously, it's like hard not to think about end times these days. It seems like we're living through so many versions of them. So for the past few years, I've been teaching a class called Apocalypse Then, which asks like what we can learn about living near or in the middle of catastrophe from 19th century U.S. literature, which was just like replete with visions of the end in all kinds of ways. So like we read texts like William Miller's lectures, which predicted that the world was going to end in 1843, James Whitfield's apocalyptic poem, The Vision. 
Sarah Winnemucca Hopkins' Life Among the Paiutes, which is a narrative of like the annihilation of Indigenous lives and lifeways by settler colonialism. Phoebe Nat Turner's Confessions, which, you know, describes the prophecies of, of earthly destruction that inspired his revolt against slavery. And the students are, I think, kind of surprised to recognize something familiar in those readings. And I think there's something kind of like heartening about having that trans-historical company, like as we are ourselves confronting catastrophe. So that was kind of one strand. Also, Holly Jackson, who's an, another member of the program committee, has do, been doing this amazing research on William Miller and connections to abolitionism. So she and I had talked a bunch about that. And those connections to abolitionism that she studied were kind of important to developing the conference theme too, because, okay, so I think a lot about this teaching assignment that I once heard Kirsten Silver-Gruz describe. She was teaching Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. And she reminded the students that when Douglass gives that speech in 1852, so two years after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, the prospects for like abolishing slavery had never seemed like so bleak. But the Emancipation Proclamation was just like came just over a decade later. And, you know, obviously that wasn't the end of slavery, but it was an event that had like so recently when Douglas gave that speech seemed impossible. So Professor Gruz asked her students to write down like what structures or what systems felt immovable to them right now. And the students with that kind of kind of historical repositioning were able to imagine the ends of those structures and systems in ways that they hadn't before. So the 19th century just seems like a good place for thinking about both the ends that we fear and also the kinds of ends we desire. And then like as the program committee and the executive committee started talking about the end as a potential theme, we just kept spinning out all these other like iterations of it. It's like narrative closure and bodily ends and borders, and periods, so on. So like despite those dark associations, which are real, we thought that it would make like a surprisingly dynamic theme. Um, but Courtney, I'd love to hear kind of like what it brought to your mind. Yeah, um, you brought up a lot of things that ran into my mind as I was even um, preparing to submit things to C-19. A lot of that hit it right on the head. And I really want to kind of home in on ends being beginnings. You know, mm -hmm. abolitionists is not about just ending something and there's nothing left after that. And so I think the panel that I am chairing and the panel that I'm a part of was so good about this theme is that it's encouraging us to think about ends a lot more problematically complicated. Like, you know, it's a process of ending something and what happens after the end. But I'm also, you know, a graduate student kind of coming to the end of my graduate career, hopefully next year. And we're coming at a, a critical juncture here where there's conversations about the end of humanities and, you know, a lot of AI is happening. And what does this mean about teaching and pedagogy and classroom management? And what does this mean for learning? You know, like what, what is happening to academia? Basically that that's what the theme is bringing up as well. And I saw some of the panels that kind of stem from that. It's also bringing up something that as people who are either on the job market or 
have been on the job market or planning to be on the job market, we have to understand like, what do we want the end of whatever we think humanities is supposed to be? But what, what's the beginning and what's the rejuvenation? What's going to happen? What things need to change structurally, institutionally? And I think a lot of our research and interests and like institutions are overlapping with like political ends as well. Where are you standing in terms of like ending police brutality and all of, you know, the many challenges that we are facing in this kind of new era of things? And so just as you said, the end is always bleak, can always be dark and ominous. But I think that these questions are coming up, especially about what we're doing in terms of how we're doing our departmental hiring and all kinds of stuff is is very fruitful and generative of like, what needs to end? <laughs> you know, what needs to end so we can move forward and begin? And so that's kind of where I came into the theme of like, this is not just a research academic question, but it's something that is really hitting on what we are supposed to be doing as scholars within our institutions and outside of our institutions. So it's good that you brought up abolitionism because that is something that's come back up. You know, that's the term that has become more popular again. And so the 19th century is kind of a book in there where it's like, what does that mean in terms of how these terms have, you know, remanifested and changed? And and what are we supposed to do in terms of ending and beginning? Thank you both for those very rich answers. Speaking of getting into the world of academia, what do you think folks are going to be looking forward to this year at C19? Outside of kind of the regular conference panels, what are maybe some perks or cultural uh, events or sites, special activities that folks are looking to take advantage of? The site committee has been doing really amazing work. They're putting together a program of activities so that conference goers can get to know both Pasadena and LA, which is just like a metro ride away. So, okay, so there'll be discounted tickets to the Huntington Library. There'll be a tour of the Los Angeles Public Library, the central branch. And Marissa Lopez has curated an exhibit there on C-19 Mexican LA. So we'll be able to get to see that too. And then the exhibit is connected to a broader project that Professor Lopez has developed called Picturing Mexican America, which I think she'd actually talked about on this podcast. And then that project has produced an app that conference goers can use to take like a self-guided bike tour called Daily Life in Early Los Angeles. So those are some possibilities in LA. But one point that the site committee has really been emphasizing is that you don't need a car to get to know LA. Kind of to that end, they've created a set of sample itineraries that will allow people to explore Pasadena as well as LA kind of based on their interests and their available time on foot or on public transit. So there are kind of a lot of different kind of paths to explore. I think there'll be a lot going on at the conference itself too, like in addition to those scheduled sessions. We'll be holding the common table dinner and cluster lunches, which we've done in previous years. We'll also be having a lunch for scholars of color and a a meetup for graduate students. And then there are also going to be two new workshops planned, um, which kind of speak to some of the points that Courtney was raising a few minutes ago. So on Friday, there'll be a pedagogy workshop called The Changing English Major, which is going to be co-organized by Sarah Blackwood and Joe Rezik. And then on Saturday, there'll be a workshop on organizing and academic labor that will have a panel of presenters, including Egan Dean, Francesca Colonese, Mishir Habib, 
uh, Mishling, Lawrence Mullen, Ashley Ratner, and they, who kind of speak to their experiences organizing and then um, open things up to conversations within smaller groups um, so people can talk about their kind of local situations. And, you know, the idea of both of those is to kind of create space for conference goers to like talk to others facing similar institutional challenges, like institutional and in institutional beginnings, possible beginnings, um, and to kind of strategize together for how to approach those. Great. Thank you. I would just love to kind of pick up on what you've just talked about. And it sounds like there's a lot of opportunities in there for networking. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like how how do you balance networking with a really kind of demanding program schedule? And, you know, you need your downtime. You also want to have a little bit of fun. How do you navigate that balance? I like to put in a, a shameless plug here for the G collective <laughs> because I think that was one of the major things that helped me navigate C19, but also like my first in-person conference. Like I, I'm literally a part of the cohort of people that spent most of my graduate career online during the pandemic. But to answer your more general question, I am a scheduler. And I really appreciate that most conferences, including C19, offer us the schedule beforehand. And I really um, choose like three to four panels a day where I know that this connects to me in some type of way, either it's something I want to learn more about, or it's something that I have read, or I have connected to, or I know someone on the panel, or I want to get to know someone on the panel. And I also try to spread that throughout the day. So they're spreading them across. And, you know, that allows for me, it's been brought up. I like to see the sites because as a graduate student, I have to kind of make this into a trip, but also a work trip. So I like to participate in going around and seeing what's happening and 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 getting to know the place and eating out and, you know, just getting new experiences. So it allows me to do that. Another tip that I can say is that if you can't afford it and if you can get it paid for, like stay at the conference hotel because you can go in between sessions and get you a little nap. <laughs> you know, you know, like I've did that before. Like I'm kind of tired right now. I'm gonna go up to my hotel room, catch like 30 minutes and and get back down refreshed and together. And so I really do try to either stay at the conference hotel or stay pretty close to them to the event itself. So you don't want to have to spend most of your rest time or fun time trying to travel to the conference. I like to sign up for the lunches and dinners because as an introvert, extrovert, it really helps me push myself to just get in situations where I don't know many people. And what helps with like some of the cluster lunches is that we we bond over a certain interest. So it might be archives, it might be whatever. And so, you know, I try to really do all of those actually. Yeah, so this just helps me feel like I have a plan with some flexibility. Like I don't really try to plan so much where I, I know what I'm doing every single minute, but at least I know what room I need to be in, you know, what the day is going to be, you know, what to expect in, you know, subject matter. So that's kind of how I navigate and like getting some sleep, making friends, making professional connections. And I've gotten a lot better since I first C19. I've learned from other conferences. Yeah, don't maybe go to something that's completely out of your field. You, you're not going to know what's going to, you know, happen, but see if you can put yourself in the conversation, ask questions or even just go up after the panel is over and say, hi, you know, my name is whatever, you know, so. Yeah, I really love that advice about like not attending more than three sessions a day, which is something I'm 
actually, I probably am not allowed to say as the program chair, but honestly, like, I think it's so wise. Like, I'm sure there are many people out there who are more intellectually committed than I am, who are just like going session to session to session. But like, you know, honestly, most of us don't have that kind of stamina and ask yourself kind of like, what kind of energy do you have? Right? Like, are you someone who can like get up and go to three consecutive sessions in the morning? Cause you've just like got that momentum or like, are you someone who right needs to spread it out? And just like be real with yourself about like how you can get the most out of that schedule. And like, I, you know, I think it's also worth recognizing and Courtney kind of pointed to this in talking about like going up to people and introducing yourself at the end of the session that like some of the best conversations often happen like on the edges of the conference, you know, in the hallway, like after that panel at the bar over coffee or whatever. So like, even if you don't manage to go to a session, like even just kind of like hanging around the conference of a hotel, that is a worthwhile endeavor. And like, yeah, definitely take at least one break a day. Don't be afraid to like spend it in your hotel room watching TV or taking a nap. But also like, I guess I say this as just like an introvert, introvert. <laughs> Don't be afraid to just like introduce yourself to a total stranger whose talk you admired or who's just like standing by themselves at the breakfast buffet. I think one of the things that's really nice about C19, maybe someone has, is going to burst my bubble on this, but is it, it, there seems to be like a lot of goodwill around the conference. Like mm -hmm. people actually enjoy going to it. People actually like, like other people in the field. They, it doesn't have that kind of sense of dread that we associate with MLA, for example. So, you know, I think people are very excited to meet people and, and like open to those kinds of conversations. Yeah. And I just want to add with the edge of the conversation point that you just stated is that like, I just went to another conference and um, I hope to do this also at C19, but you start seeing like certain people in the room over and over again. And you start being like, okay, me and you are interested in some of the same subjects and panels. And so that kind of is a way to open up conversation as well. Like, oh, wow. Like we've been in like all the sessions together, this whole conference, what is your name? And so, you know, that's, scary for me to do as well go up to people that I don't know and 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 say something but when you start seeing like wow like we, we're having some overlapping things here I'm I'm getting to know faces I'm seeing that we're going to the same panels and so that's some of the kind of the edge conversations that I feel like you're talking about in terms of like you can just make a conversation over like mutual interests we're clearly interested in the same things yeah I think you know even after I don't know, all these years in graduate school, there's still that kind of little conference tear um, as, as a graduate worker going into, into a conference and, um, you know, trying to navigate that, the sort of constant, you know, I have to fake it till I make it or, you know, I have to enter into the zone. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Spencer Tricker, Assistant Professor of English at Clark University. I'm currently working on a book called Imminent Communities, which is about the uses and abuses of cosmopolitan affect in trans-Pacific literature. The authors I study are Herman Melville, Jack London, Suisun Farr, Jose Rizal, and Queen Lily Uokalani. When I was last on the C19 podcast, we were all in the midst of lockdown, and I was talking to my graduate school colleague, Brad Rittenhouse, about getting started with work in the digital humanities. That was season three, episode five, and it's called Staying with the Hypothesis. At the conference next spring, I'll be participating in the Latinx and Asian American 19th Century Seminar. My paper links one of Suisun Farr's narratives with the early work of Mark Twain. 
I'll also be chairing a panel called Trans-Pacific Encounters, which involves faculty and grad students. My research and teaching are very much devoted to calling attention to the value of Trans-Pacific studies pre-World War II and especially pre-1900, so it'll be great to hear from similarly-minded scholars in Pasadena. I'll close out by saying that if you see me at C19, please don't hesitate to say hello. I'm always keen to get to know colleagues in our field. If we could just turn back to the, the G19 Collective as kind of an opportunity for for what that looks like, and maybe as, a, as if that's an example for you, Courtney, that has kind of is an experience that's gone well for you to navigate networking. If you could speak to that a little bit, just so people know what the opportunity is. There will be emails circulating around once things get planned about a get together and what that looked like in Miami for me. That was my first time being a part of the G19 Collective is that it was it was like a it wasn't like a middle of the day thing, but it was like at a local bar near the hotel. And some people were able to get free drinks or whatever. Uh, I'm not a drinker personally, but you get to be able to be a community with other graduate students and and it wasn't really like super structured. You just sat wherever you can and you got to know other people. Um, I actually walked over with other graduate students that I had met just during other panel sessions or through other people. Like the group just started kind of building. And then they were like, oh, the G19 is having this. And I was like, oh, I don't know what that is. So I went. <laughs> and so now that I've gotten more involved, I do understand a lot more what's what's happening. But yeah, at that point, the current and past G19 leaders, they announced oh, we have more ways to be a community other than just meeting up at the conference. We have this thing called the New Book Forum. And so, you know, they asked for people who were interested, if you wanted to get involved, let them know. And that's how I got involved. I literally, after the conference, remembered, and I thought it was such a great opportunity. I love talking to people about their writing process and their books, because I'm always thinking about a future book in my life somewhere. And that's just a really good way way to like just have some of those networking opportunities that come after the conference and so that's another important thing like you're building up for things that come after not just during and so I emailed them and they were great and that's how I started to do the interviews I've did two so far I mean we're looking for more people to be a part of it and to suggest new first books and it's just become something of its own where now I'm helping coordinate along with Rachel Max and Allie future interviews but also the hangout session or whatever during the Pasadena conference Hi C19, this is Sean Gordon. I'm speaking from Fresno, California, the traditional homelands of the Yilkuts and Mono people, where I teach abolitionist poetics and environmental justice at the California State University. I was last on the C19 podcast when Carrie Schneider and a few of our academic BFFs recorded the episode of Reverence Toward the Canon. I was a PhD student at UMass Amherst at the time. It was deep quarantine and we just wanted to talk a little trash, and it was a lot of fun. I'm so excited for the C19 conference. This year, I'm on one of the poetic theory panels with Meredith McGill and Virginia Jackson and some other great people. I'm going to be talking about what I'm calling the poetics of dehiscence. It's a word I probably first heard reading Lacan, but then Fred Moten uses it. And I'm going to be focused on its use in the work of James McCune Smith, 
where I think it's a resource for thinking about the poetry and physics of abolition. Well, I think we've got to talk about also the key part of conferences, right? Those papers that we all have to write and present on. So um, I would love to hear kind of your thoughts on your advice for how you develop a conference paper, whether you're kind of transforming something big to something small or you're testing out an idea. What does that look like to you? And um, apart from, you know, making sure you have plenty of space on the airplane to, you know, put your laptop, what other um, tips do you have? So the first advice is, please understand, like, what the panel is. Is it a panel? <laughs> <laughs> is it a panel? Is it a roundtable? Is it a seminar? There's all those different things require different preparation. My first experience at C19 was a roundtable rather than a panel. And so there was like, I forget the exact number, but like between five and seven of us on there. And that's not the usual uh, way that panels go. It's usually three to four people. You have more time to give a longer paper. But we had maybe five to seven minutes to speak. And we luckily had an object that we could put up on the screen. It, it was like either an object or a scene or a text. You can put something that you can talk about in those five to seven minutes. And even though that's not the most traditional way of doing conference papers, it really taught me a lot about how I did once after C19, where you really got to focus on the meat and potatoes here. Like it, it can't be the whole secondary literature conversation. It can't be every example that you have included in your seminar paper or your chapter or even an article you may be developing. You literally need to grab people's attention, especially in this day and age, and really get them to understand the argument. And the way that I try to do it for a paper that I've already written is, especially for that one that only had five to seven minutes, I started with a scene that I could just build out to show my larger parts of my argument. Now, I have started to have to write from scratch for conference papers, so I'm also trying to teach myself this as well, but... I find the best conference papers is when people notify you that this is a work in progress. Like I am still very much trying to figure this out. I have not tried that yet. I haven't said like, oh, I'm still working on this, but <laughs> I haven't did that statement yet. But it shows that like, okay, this is supposed to be more of a conversation rather than some sort of defense or grilling, you know, session. I have a work in progress here. I thought it was cool. I got accepted. What questions and feedback can you guys give me in terms of finishing this article or finishing this chapter or, you know, whatever. So really, you don't have to know everything. You just have to convey your argument idea as clearly, as simply as possible. Yeah, I just want to co-sign everything that Courtney said. And I'm sorry I laughed at the beginning. That was just because you're, the distinction you were making is so crucial and so little attended to often. Yeah, I mean, I also just like totally agree that the kind of more experimental paper is like always the one I enjoy the most. The one that like tries out an argument that the that the presenter might not be fully confident about yet and like tries to, you know, advance some hypothesis that's like maybe still provisional or speculative or whatever. And 
that approach really does, like as Courtney was saying, take seriously like the possibilities of being in conversation with your co-panelists, of being in conversation with your audience members, rather than just kind of like demonstrating mastery or whatever, like just dropping a fully fledged, like no perfect reading on everyone, which that can be a kind of like virtuous thing. Yeah. But it's also like, if you're in the audience, it's kind of like, well, why am I here? I could have read that. We all brought up really great points. Hey, wow. I guess, you know, since we're talking about the conference panels and sessions, how do you handle the comment more than a question component of a presentation? How might one kind of navigate that? And relatedly, what are some tips that you might kind of offer for overcoming the anxiety around that kind of port, the Q&A portion, especially of a presentation? Yeah, I have so little patience for the comment, not a question. I mean, if you have a comment, like that is that is what you bring to someone after the panel, like Courtney was saying, and whatever, I don't like it because it seems that it's almost always posturing. And I just think you don't have to take the bait if you're on the panel. Like, I love it when people are like, that is so interesting. Thank you. And just like, keep it moving. You know, I'm someone who still really goes like deer in the headlights during a Q&A. I will forget like everything I've just said, any research I've ever done, like my own name. So I will often make a short bullet pointed list of things that like didn't necessarily make it into the paper, but might be worth bringing up. And I'll just like include it at the bottom of my talk. So, you know, like other folds to the argument or open questions, like connections to other texts or anecdotes or whatever, just to like have them there to look at if they turn out to be useful. And I guess I also really like Q&As where panelists are like kind of forthright about what led them into that research. So I would just say like, don't be afraid to get a little autobiographical and narrate that if it seems relevant. Courtney, what would you add? Yeah, um, I haven't really ran personally into the, you know, this is more of a comment than a question person. I've seen it happen in different ways. So I think you pick are, are picking up on like, it can be a sense of like posturing, like, oh, I know something you don't know type situation, right? Um, but I've seen it done other ways where it kind of facilitates more of a conversation essence into the Q&A. Like, I just want to say something because I want to engage your work and I know that it's important, especially in earlier sessions in the day, I've seen people say like it's early I don't know much about where my brain is <laughs> but I want to say something that might turn into a question so I like more of that version rather than you know I consider myself you know an expert and I just want to say something to let other people know I'm an expert I like the ones that's like I am genuinely interested I don't know my question exactly, but you said something there that was um, intriguing. And so usually in that situation where I've been in or I've seen other people be in that situation, it turns into a statement back that's like, you're bringing up something here that I was dealing with in the paper myself. Like, you know, like I haven't fully fleshed that out yet, but let me tell you my preliminary ideas of where I am thinking about going in that direction. So if it's anything like that, I think, you know, you can engage it further, you know, situations I've asked questions back, like maybe are you mm -hmm. getting at like where I said X, Y, Z, or you're making me think of X, Y, Z, you know, like stuff like that. But if it's the other version, it, it's like, oh, yes, thank you. I, I've never, <laughs> I've never considered that. Thank you. I'm going to write a note. 
But generally around Q&A, I think going into it of like, you just, you cannot fully prepare. You don't know what's really going to happen. You can do the bullet points. I try to keep a mental note of what I left out and what I would expand upon. But I also think like, try to trust that hopefully you 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 have a great respondent and a great chair that will try to navigate the strongest questions towards certain people on the panel. I think that's a strong panel overall. Of, like there's not only just strong papers being presented, but there's people knowing how to like get the conversation where it needs to be. Oh, fabulous advice. Oh, go ahead, Laura. I was just going to say thank you for the much more generous answer about the comment, not a question. Um, you're totally right. What would you say are, are some of the do's and don'ts of attending a conference? Um, and what are some, you know, words of caution or advice that you would give to our listeners who are, you know, hopefully planning to attend in March? I can start with maybe the biggest don't is please do not go into a panel especially the Q&A session, wanting to attack or disrespect someone, whether it's because of professional reasons or personal reasons. I just don't think that's the best use of anyone's time. The people who planned the conference don't want to create that environment. The person who planned the panel does not, they don't want to create that environment. The person who has to be at the receiving end of that doesn't want to be in that environment. So really just try to make sure you go into the things that are bringing you joy is something you connect with and yeah if you have any kind of feelings of that nature maybe try to not 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 feed into that always great advice yeah that's so good um just to add to that i would say like do go to panels out of curiosity like even if they don't seem immediately related to your research or teaching i've often found that those are the ones that are the most memorable and also even the most like productive for my thinking just like to come at certain problems or certain i don't know methods from like a different angle i think that's really important definitely do leave the hotel do introduce yourself to like at least one person you haven't met before. And maybe most important, don't, when you meet someone, do not scan their name tags for their institutional affiliation. You can just look them in the eyes and have a regular conversation talking to a person, not an institution. I really love that. A fantastic um, piece of advice. Oh, yes, go ahead, Courtney. I can add another do. I'm not seriously a fan of elevator pitches, but I do understand that, especially for graduate students, if you can have something about yourself and your project or your research, if you're not at the dissertation stage yet, that can give someone quickly, because like those edge conversations we talked about, they can range anywhere between one minute to okay, let's go out for lunch or dinner type situations. So you have to be kind of prepared of where do you want to enter the conversation? Does it, is it about, oh, your research connects to my research? Or did I read your book recently? Or did you just mention my advisor's name or someone on my committee? I know them, you know, mm -hmm. like don't, don't be, don't be uh, ashamed to bring other people in the room that they may know, because then that brings a whole context you can follow behind, kind of. But I've literally went up to people and said, I just cited your article in my first chapter that I wrote for my dissertation. Thank you for your work. Because I don't think a lot of us know when people are reading our stuff, if it's not 
being published with the citation in it. And so little interactions like that can be a fun twist on the elevator pitch. It doesn't always have to be, hi, my name is Courtney and I go to Penn State. And I, you know, it can be like, I literally just read your article and I saw your name and I recognized that this was you and your research has been helpful in XYZ ways. That was something that I did like to do at the last conference I just went to. And I will also add, just travel-wise, this is this is a tip. Try to fly in a day before the conference starts, especially in this time. Traveling is not the best anymore. I remember a time in pre-pandemic where you, you can get to your destination uh, without delays or cancellations, but that does not happen anymore. So I try to fly in a day early, and I, I fly a day after because I had to do that anyway for the last C-19. So might as well start now. Um, and it just it just kind of alleviates some of that travel stress that some people may have that I've kind of grown over the years, especially during and after the pandemic. So that's one little kind of thing that I do now that's just really nice to have some breathing room in your travel space. Hi, my name is Carrie Schneider, and I am Associate Professor in the Department of Communication, English, and Foreign Languages at Cameron University in Lawton, Oklahoma. I'm generally a 19th century Americanist, but my research also strays into studies of social media, esoterica, and nuclear waste rhetoric. You last heard me on the C-19 podcast back in Season 4, Episode 6 on Irreverence Toward the Canon, co-hosted with my friend Sean Gordon. As it turns out, my project for the upcoming C-19 conference also reaches beyond the canonical into the weird margins of the literary on a panel titled Weird California. I'm looking at a text from the 1880s, A Dweller on Two Planets, which the author, Frederick Spencer Oliver, wrote at age 17 by supposedly channeling the spirit of Phylos, an esoteric being who once lived in Atlantis. It's kind of a hilarious book in the way it is very obviously self-insert fantasy written by a teenage boy who was bored and lonely on his parents' mining claim out in remote Siskiyou County. But weird as it is, this book is noteworthy in that it ends up establishing the foundations for 20th century occult claims and pulp fiction motifs about the lost continent of Nemuria and the ancient aliens inside Mount Shasta by claiming that the American West is a remnant of ancient Atlantis from whence American exceptionalism, of course, derives. Most interestingly, though, A Dweller on Two Planets is published the moment of the supposed end of the frontier, but makes an argument that reinvigorates Manifest Destiny by offering up the concept of a cyclical repeating history in which the colonization of the American West happens over and over again. Anyway, this is all exceptionally bananas, and I am still not sure what to think about this text. But what I love about the C-19 conferences is the openness to these kinds of emergent ideas and projects in progress, and the way conversations at and between panels help me figure out new lines of inquiry and connections of text I've never even heard of. I'm so looking forward to talking about this bonkers novel and its place in American literary history and to hanging out with all of you in Pasadena this spring. If we're going to look ahead a little bit to future conferences, how would people maybe get involved in future conference planning? And what about this year's event? Is it too late? It is not too late. Um, we're still kind of working out what needs to be done, but definitely look for emails in the next month or two asking for volunteers in like one area or another. And then the committees, I believe for C-19 2026 will form in the fall. So then, so also keep an eye out for emails calling for nominations, because that always includes self-nominations. Or also, if you have like a friend or colleague who you think would be a great fit, please nominate them as well. 
That's uh, really great to know. And uh, thanks, you know, for this really wonderful and enlightening conversation today. Uh, we're just going to kind of wrap up with if you just want to tell me about your favorite part of attending C-19. Um, I really want to applaud the planning committee for C-19 because I feel like, first of all, it's the perfect time of the year to travel anywhere. So they always pick top tier places. It's, it's, I've only been to one, but so far going to Miami and now going to California, that's that's my favorite thing. Um, I really like when people pick great places to go. My favorite other thing is just the lunches and dinners and all the attention that goes into planning those things for not only faculty to connect with each other, but for uh, graduate students to also get into the mix. I really appreciate that my first time and I look forward to being a part of it again as a more seasoned, more <laughs> mature and confident graduate student. So those are kind of my favorite things that I, I really am looking forward to C19 in California. And I mean, I'm so grateful to like you and to the whole G19 committee for like everything that you've done to make that happen for other people as well, because that's huge. I'm the only 19th century Americanist in my department and, and we have no grad students. So for me, the best part of C19 is just the chance to learn what's going on in the field and especially um, the kind of work that younger scholars are doing. And sorry, I know that that sounds corny, but it's true. Um, no, it doesn't sound corny at all. That that no. sounds great. I think, you know, the best part of attending conferences always seems to be that it, it is an enriching, but it kind of also, I think it reinvigorates me every time I go to a conference. I really wish I could go to C19 this year. I would love to get some of that life um, breathed back into me. Well, it was fabulous chatting with you both today. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Lara. Hello, C19 Academic Familia. I'm Vanessa Ovaya Perez, and currently I'm an assistant professor of English at California State University, San Bernardino. I research Latinas of 19th century California who published in Spanish language newspapers. These Latinas wrote lots of poetry, at least one serialized novel, brindis or toasts, and they also published speeches in which they spoke out against the French intervention in Mexico. These women also spoke out about injustices in their own backyards. For example, a washerwoman and single mom in the Sierra Nevadas, Anastasia Leva, speaks out against her brother's brutal lynching, and her testimony actually made it all the way to the desk of Secretary of State at the time, William H. Seward. So last year, I had the privilege of being in residency all year at the Huntington Library, and I was actually able to complete my book manuscript on this topic. It is tentatively titled Vasto Pensamiento, Vast Thought, The Words and Stories of Latinas in the 19th Century California Press. And right now I'm at this exciting stage trying to find a publisher for my manuscript, and I also have a grant to make it open access. So when it comes to C19, I was on the podcast once before with my friend and fellow scholar, Sarah Skillen. We talked about Latina dedication poems in the 19th century. And this year, I am not going to be giving a presentation at the conference. Unfortunately, my university had some budget issues, so I wasn't able to register. But I will be a volunteer. I will be around. And so feel free to come and say hi to me. I'd be happy to talk about my research. Also, don't be shy about sending me an email. 
Thank you so much for listening. And if you come to the conference, I hope you enjoy beautiful LA. Thank you for listening. We are a production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. If you enjoyed this episode or have thoughts, use the hashtag C19podcast on Twitter or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? For details on submitting a proposal, check out our CFP on the C19 website.